Our text for this morning's message will be Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14, going down through verse 18. Romans chapter 9, verse 14 through verse 18. As you're turning, let me just remind you, as we know, that this is Paul writing to the saints at Rome, to his church there, as he instructs them about the wonder of the gospel, the effects that it is to have on our life, and uh, is explaining to us the deep things of God. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Let's bow our heads. Father, we come before you this morning. We are thankful for all that you've done, for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for this time together. I ask now that you would help us remove the distractions from our mind and our hearts. Help us to have good ground in our hearts that we might receive the seed and it might bring forth fruit in us, Lord. I ask now that you do the work that only you can do of enlightening, of teaching, of, of bringing us to an understanding of this wonderful passage. Give me grace to speak true to your word and only what you would have me to say. I thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. So here we are at these verses. The verses that are said to change your theology. The verses that are said to make you, let me just say it bluntly, a Calvinist. Verses that people are scared of. Verses that I in my 38 years in this Baptist work have heard less than a few sermons on. Perhaps this is the first one you might be hearing, at least that you can remember. These verses that some take and change the meaning of the whole rest of the Bible because of the meaning they see here. They see something here and they change all the rest of Scripture to fit this. Very hotly debated, very fiercely defended, and again, sometimes avoided. And I said from the outset, when we introduced Romans 9-11, through we're not going to avoid them. We're going to face them head on and see what God has to say. They're here for a reason, to teach us something. And so we'll do just that this morning. But before we actually dig in here, I want you actually to turn to another passage that I want to set before you before we start. So if you could, please keep your finger here in Romans 9, but turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. There's something Peter writes in his epistle that we need to see as well. And I think it's going to help us as we start off on this. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 3, and pick it up in verse 14. Peter says here, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. 
verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Paul has wrote about the same things, that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation, that we should be found of him without spot and in peace, at peace with God and blameless. He's written, Paul has written these same things to you. Verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them, of the, in the letters, of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, Beware lest ye also being led away from the error, or excuse me, being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Now you understand, and we're not going to spend a lot of time with this, but Peter writes his letters from Rome. He is in Rome writing his letters that are going out. If Peter's in Rome, you better believe he probably read a letter that was addressed to the saints at Rome. He says in 1 Peter, he, the church, that the elect of Babylon or some, some phrase like that. He, he uses the phrase Babylon, which we could probably assume is the city of Rome. All that to say, Peter probably read Romans. He read the letter Paul wrote. He says, hey, Paul's writing about the same things, but let me warn you right now. Uh, there's some things in them it's pretty hard to understand. <laughs> I have no doubt Peter knows the level that Paul writes on. Paul has a brilliant mind. He thinks deeper about the things of God than me or you ever will. He can anticipate questions. He can hit every angle of a subject. He's a brilliant mind. And sometimes it's hard to understand smart people because they use big words or they use big phrases. I'm not that smart. Sometimes I have to sit and think about what somebody says. What do you really mean? Well kind of what we got to do with Paul. I have no doubt that the some things that are hard to be understood that Paul or that Peter's writing here about Paul's writings is probably the very passage we have for our text. You know what he says, be careful. Be careful that you don't twist it the wrong way. There are truths of the Bible that can be wrested or twisted, literally tortured away from their meaning. You can make it mean something else than what it's saying. And leading those who do so, who take the truth of Scripture, take it another way, you know what it leads to? Unstableness. Even destruction. Isn't that what he says? They, those who are unlearned and unstable rest, as the other Scriptures, under their own destruction. Be careful that you being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Listen, the truth of Scripture is like a rock. We stand on it rock solid and sure-footed. But when you start to mess around with the truth of Scripture, everything becomes shaky, doesn't it? So Peter is saying, be careful. Besides, he says, you already know these things. Paul's written to you. I wrote to you. You know these things. Well, let's just quickly notice what he's talking about. This is going to mean something. Look up in verse 9. That God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. 
We know these things, that God wants all men to be saved. Paul writes about those in his letters. In verse 10 through 13, he talks about Jesus coming again with his kingdom. Paul writes a lot about that too, doesn't he? And so does Peter. In verse 14, he says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye looked for such things, the coming of Christ, be diligent that ye be found in him of peace without spot and blameless, living right, right now for the kingdom. And knowing this, verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. The more he tarries his coming, you understand? The more he is long-suffering with us, the more people are saved. The more people get in the church and are baptized. We may want the Lord to come right now, but you understand, people are being saved as he tarries his coming. There's more people coming into the kingdom because he is waiting in his perfect timing. And Paul writes of this in all of his letters, Romans included, that God offers salvation and that we ought to live as his kingdom people now, looking for his return. Unless it's all by unconditional election, and then what does it matter? Why bother writing about these things if God chooses it, chooses you, and does it in you? You see what I'm saying? So we dare not twist the Scripture and be led away from the steadfast truth of the Bible into error. So let's keep that in mind. Let's go back to Romans. Yeah, it might be a little hard to understand, but let's not twist it and get all messed up with the truth of the Bible. Paul writes about the goodness of God leading to repentance. Paul writes about living as a kingdom person now, looking for the return of Jesus, living right for Him. Laying some responsibilities on us. It's amazing how some people, when they come to these four verses, or this whole passage actually, they forget the rest of the biblical pattern. They forget the rest of what the Bible says, how God has revealed Himself. And they try to make the Bible fit with what they see here. Because it seems to say something different. Let me tell you right now, the Bible is in perfect harmony from Genesis to Revelation. It is in perfect harmony, in perfect agreement with itself. Things that Paul writes here doesn't cancel out other parts of Scripture. It all flows together. And on the other hand, don't get so focused on trying to not make it say something that we miss it as well. You can do that. You can try so hard not to be a Calvinist that you miss things that are said in the Scripture. We don't want to do that either, do we? How about this? How about we let it say what it says? We let the Bible say what it says, and we understand what it says. And that sometimes requires us to think. To think. Think about what it says. Why is Paul saying this? Why has why he used this example? Because he could have used a lot of other ones, but he, he says this. Why does he say this? Sometimes the Bible's easy and clear, and sometimes it requires us to think and to ask for guidance from the Holy Spirit. And when we do, I believe it comes clear. Let me just say before we start, there is much we all need to learn here. In fact... Uh, the most important principles for your walk with God are found right here. So don't tune out. Don't 
check out the most important principles for your walk with God and my walk with God, and it doesn't matter if you're brand new or you've been serving for decades, they're addressed right here. And they teach us what we need to know. At the same time, reminding us of our place. You are familiar with how many will explain these verses, especially verse 18. Therefore, he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. They say that God can choose who to save because he's God. Some he chooses to have mercy on. It has nothing to do with their faith. It has nothing to do with their goodness. It has nothing to do other than God is God and he can choose to save whom he wants. So on some he chooses to have mercy and to save them. On others he chooses to harden, namely to send them to hell, and they have no chance, they have no choice. Is that what Paul is saying? Because that is how many interpret these verses. That's the issue. That's the question, right? Is that what he's saying? And, and because is that what this seems to say? Does that change all of the rest of the Bible? Or do we sit down and think? Think. Why is Paul saying this? We know the context. Paul is addressing Israel and how they fell. God's elect people, his chosen people, fell away. They turned their back on God. They rejected God. And so God, as the scripture says, and as we'll read, hardened them, blinded them. He put them under, under divine judgment. And Paul is asking, uh, answering the question, well, if they were God's chosen, how does that happen? Did God lie in the Old Testament? Does God lie in the Bible? Especially in Romans chapter 8 when he goes about how God, nothing could be laid against the charge of God's elect and who's going to separate us from God? Nothing. Well, what about Israel? What happened to them? Paul's answering that question. How does God's chosen people fall away? Even though, look in verse 4, they had all of this, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Whose are the fathers and of whom concerning the flesh Christ came? They had all of this rich, beautiful, wonderful history. How did they fall? How could it be that if God keeps us, if nothing can separate us, how can we fall away? Is his word not true or did he lie? Not in the least. And, God, and Paul is explaining how it can happen. Look in the end of chapter 9 of Romans and I'll show you what he's working towards. Verse 31. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. There they're searching for that standard that the law brings of being holy and being right with God. They're trying to get there, but they didn't get there. Why? Verse 32. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Speaking of Christ. They didn't get there because it wasn't by faith. It was by their own works, their own holiness, their own... Um, arrogance in their own heritage i'm a jew i'm automatically right with god i'm automatically better in fact look at what i do and how i tithe and how i'm not like somebody else and how i keep the law it's all about me and my works and paul says hey they missed it 
because they went about it not by faith. Not all of them. Verse 6 in the end says, For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. There's a spiritual remnant. There was people who believed. People who were faithful. Mary and Joseph and Zacharias and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna and all of those people who were part of the Jerusalem church. They were faithful. They got it. Most did not. Why? Because they didn't seek it by faith. And Paul is quoting Old Testament examples to show his point. He shows Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the son of promise. God's work, the impossible one by the flesh. That Abraham had to believe in by faith. Not Ishmael. We are God's children by faith. Not by birthright, you understand? Nobody is born a Baptist. Nobody is born saved. We're all born lost. And there has to come a point where we surrender and believe in faith. He uses the example of Esau and Jacob. Jacob had faith in the promise. Esau didn't. Esau didn't count it as precious. And it's a faith that only not, God not only foresaw, but He foreknew. Listen, I believe wholeheartedly God knows exactly who was going to be faithful and who isn't. God knows every choice we're going to make. God knows what, how faithful we're going to be to Him. And that goes for every person on the face of this earth. And in His sovereign plan, He allows us to make those choices. I believe God gets more glory when we choose Him rather than Him forcing us to serve Him. He gets glory when His creation chooses Him. He knows, but He lets us do it. And so he says, in paraphrase, Esau's going to reject. Jacob's going to get it. And what does he say there in verse 12? The elder, shall, the elder shall serve the younger. Literally, the greater shall serve the lesser. And it was proved by their actions, because down the line, Esau's family, the Edomites, the Idumeans, whom Herod comes from, walked away from God. And Jacob, well, his name was changed to Israel. And his family, his line, became the nation God chose. God knew that. He says it beforehand, simple as that. I don't think he forced anybody to do anything. He's God making a statement that only God can make. By the way, this is what's going to happen. And he lets us make our choices. Ishmael was not the promised seed. Esau was unfaithful. And it's not by heritage. It's not by works. God does not honor either one. You know what he honors? He honors his promise. He honors faith in him. Not man's pride. Not man's works or efforts. Is he unrighteous in doing that? No. He is God. And he is free to choose to do what he wants. But in His wonderful grace, He has shown us what He does honor. So let's start in verse 15. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? No, God can do what He wants. And Paul here, in verse 15, says something interesting. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. <clears throat> we don't get it because we're not fluent in the Old Testament. 
If I stood up here, or if I was writing a letter, and I said unto you, Jesus saith unto Nicodemus, you must be born again. There's some things that's going to pop in your head, right? John chapter 3, John 3, 16, a whole conversation that goes on with Nicodemus. We have a, a sense of it, right? Because it's so familiar to us. We know what happens and what Jesus says and, and how he instructs Nicodemus about salvation. So if I pulled a quote out from there, it instantly would ring a bell with you. Well, that's what he does here. When Paul quotes this, it's going to ring a bell in people's minds. Oh, I remember that. And it, does he quote this to say that God arbitrarily just randomly chooses who he's going to save or not? Or is there something more? Look with me. This is where we start thinking, okay, why? Why did he say this? Turn to Exodus chapter 33. My prayer is that I will be clear in this as the Lord has kind of laid this on my heart and that you'll see the clarity of it. Exodus 33, and we'll pick it up in verse 12. You all remember the golden calf, right? Moses goes up on the mountain and they make a golden calf. That's just happened. And God basically tells Moses, move out of the way. I'm going down. I'm going to destroy some people. And Moses says, hold on, hold on. No, 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 don't. <laughs> you brought us out of Egypt. What good is it if you destroy it? In fact, that's the phrase, uh, yeah, the, the verse we read a couple weeks ago where he says, blot my name out of the book of life and have mercy on them. Kind of what Paul says in the beginning of Romans 9. That's all happened. And this is where we pick up Exodus 33 and 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, bring up this people. I, first of all, I love the relationship between Moses and God. There's nobody like it. This is Moses in the presence of God. Like this isn't a prayer. God is there and he's speaking to them. Speaking to him. They're speaking to each other. And this is, this is what they say. Moses said to the Lord, See, thou sayest to me, bring up this people. And thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send me with me. You said, you said, bring these people up. Who are you going to send with me, Lord? Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. See that? God has said to Moses, I know you by name, and you have found grace in my sight. Verse 13, Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I might find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. Show me more. I want to see more, Lord. Verse 14, And he, God, said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he, Moses, said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are on the face of the earth. How are people going to know we're different? You have to go with us, Lord. I want you to go with us on this journey. I want you to go with me. You say you know me. You say I found grace in your sight. Well, then go with me. Show me more. You see where Moses is coming from? Okay. Verse 17, And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken. For thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And Moses said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, 
and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's the quote. Why did Paul pull it from there? You see what's going on? Moses is a man who has found grace in the sight of the Lord. He is on his face before God, and he is asking to show more. Lord, I want to see more of you. I want you to go with me. Lord, show me more. He's a man who is there who is repentant of the sin of the nation. He's already found grace. I believe he's already a saved man. And he's saying, Lord, show me more. To that, God says, yes, I will. I will show you myself. I will go with you. And it's not by man's working. It's not by man's doing. It's not even by your demanding it, Moses. It's because I'm a merciful God and I will show you myself. God has mercy on those who follow Him in faith. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Well, who does he have mercy to? The one who is bowed before him asking to see more. You see that? The one who is on his face before God, pleading, Lord, show me more. Go with us. I don't want to go without you. It's got to be you with us. Listen now, just like Isaac and just like Jacob and just like the faithful remnant of Israel who followed by faith. They knew the mercy of God, not the ones who hardened their hearts. Not the ones who rejected Jesus. Not the ones who thought they were righteous because of their own works. They rejected, even though God extended His mercy to them. We'll come back to this thought in a bit. But as you make your way back to Romans, Paul says this in chapter 10. To Israel he saith all day long, I have stretched forth my hands into a disobedient and gainsaying people. I've tried to draw you in, guys. I've stretched forth my hands and you won't. In Matthew 23, Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered thy children together to me and you would not. And you know what he says next? Behold, your house is left to you desolate. God extends His mercy and His compassion time after time, doesn't He? Not because we demand it, not because we deserve it, but those who bow in faith see it. Those who follow in faith see it. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. But there comes a time that we can reject one too many times. And here's where His sovereignty comes in. Here's where the uncomfortable part comes in. Paul says in Romans 7, excuse me, 11 and 7, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. For as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this day. They were hardened. You understand that? What does verse 18 of chapter 9 say? Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Can he do that? Is God allowed to do that? I mean, I, listen, man, I thought he's supposed to be up there just waiting for us. 
Like waiting for us to come around in our own good time and say, oh man, I'm so glad you finally came. Like he's waiting on pins and needles for us to stop sinning, stop doing whatever we want, and finally come back to him. Right? That's what everybody else said. And this hardening stuff? Come on. Really? God owes us nothing. He's God. And Paul's going to show you that from Scripture. Verse 17, Romans 9, 17. We have the example of Moses. Bowed before God. Obedient to Him, asking for more. And what does God say? I will show you my mercy. Now we have another example in verse 17. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and and my name might be declared throughout all the earth. I don't think there's a greater example in all of the Bible of human pride and human resistance to God other than Pharaoh. Nebuchadnezzar comes close, but he got saved, didn't he? Daniel chapter 4. You read that when you get time. Pharaoh, he ain't having nothing of God. You know what the first recorded words we have of him? Who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord, and no, I will not let your people go. (laughs) And it goes on about like that for the next nine or ten chapters. And he is an excellent illustration of what Paul is saying. Let me just say, you're going to read verse 17 either one of two ways. That either God chose Pharaoh to go to hell in eternity past without a chance, or you sit and think, why? Why Why does he use this one? Let me first say this clearly and address what he's talking about when I have raised thee up. Again, God is God. He can do whatever He wants, and we've got no room to question. And God can use individuals for His sovereign purpose. People like Pharaoh, so He can bring His people out of Egypt. Or people like Nebuchadnezzar. Or Darius and Cyrus in the book of Daniel and Ezekiel. Or Herod. Or Pilate. Or Judas. He says, I have raised thee up for my purpose. You, individually. One commentator put it this way. Imagine that this man who was Pharaoh had been a shepherd in the deserts of Midian. And a much weaker man had been Pharaoh. Things would have been different. A weaker man that did not enslave Israel. Or that said, okay, sure, you guys can go. You would have no plagues. You would have no Passover. You would have no Red Sea. No unmistakable display of God's power and plan. No, this man who was raised up to be Pharaoh was the perfect man for the job. So God can use individuals for His purpose. This man became Pharaoh, was born into the family he was, and became Pharaoh for a reason, that God might show His power through him. And God can do that. But what about the hardening part? 
Because we all know that the Bible is clear. Pharaoh's heart was what? Time and time again, right? Pharaoh's heart was hardened. By who? By who? By God? Let me give you a quote from Pastor Rick Howard in his commentary. Kind of illuminates it. He asked this question. Does this mean, does this verse mean that God raised up Pharaoh to be a lost unbeliever? Or does it mean that God raised up a man already a lost unbeliever, lifted up in his own pride and power? The world will tell you the first meaning is right. God raised up Pharaoh to be lost. But I don't believe that's what Scripture says. God raised up a man who was already lost, already lifted up in his own pride and power to be used for the purposes of God. The scripture that Paul quotes in verse 17 is Exodus 9.16. The next verse in Exodus, Exodus 9.17 says this, As yet, speaking to Pharaoh, as yet thou exaltest thyself against my people that thou wilt not let them go. You exalt yourself against me. See what he's saying? Listen, no less than 15 times this phrase, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, or Pharaoh's hardened his heart, or God hardened his heart, no less than 15 times in the account of Exodus that phrase is used. Five times of God expressly, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Seven times, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Another three times, it just simply says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Who hardens Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh and God. Both are responsible. So how does that work? Two things now, and listen closely. Hebrews chapter 3, as well as the Psalms, tell us this. Harden not your hearts. He's speaking to you and to me. Don't harden your own heart. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We can harden our own hearts. The deceitfulness of sin hardens our hearts. It leads us away from God. It it puts up barriers between us and God. Sin wrecks our relationship with God. Romans 2, 5. After your hard and impenitent heart, your hard and unrepentant heart. Nehemiah and Jeremiah use this phrase multiple times. They harden their necks. Listen, as a pastor, that's something I (laughs) I get to see. You touch on a subject that's touchy, you see this. Harden their necks. Oh, no, he didn't. And you start to get to squirm. It's like their neck becomes stone. We do that, don't we? I don't like that. Why are you going there? What are you saying to me? That's not new. That's biblical. Nehemiah, Jeremiah, they said they hardened their necks. Stephen says it this way in Acts chapter 7, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do you. We can harden our own hearts, can't we? We can resist the Spirit as it leads us, get stiff-necked and hard-hearted. There is a personal responsibility. 
You and I can resist, we can turn it off, we can walk away, we can reject and go do our own thing. You and I make those decisions. We are the ones responsible, just like Pharaoh. Let my people go. No, I will not let your people go. Who is this God? I do not know the Lord, and no, I will not let your people go. He hardened his own heart. Okay, so what about God's part? Is it a blocking, a forcing, a manipulation? Like God holding his hand over your eyes so you can't see the light? I don't want you to be saved. I want you to go to hell. Is that what we're talking about? Now listen. I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think it's talking about something much more simple. God may convict and draw us for a time. You know the grace of God He's had in your own life. When you've made those wrong, stupid decisions and you knew it and you did it anyways, right? And yet God is gracious enough to forgive and to draw us back. He may do that and He does. But in the end, when God hardens a heart, here's what happens. You can flip over to Romans chapter 1, if you would. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. <coughs> and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made to like to corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and to creeping things. Wherefore, what? What does it say? God did what? Gave them over. God gave them up. God gave them over. When God hardens a heart, you know what He does? Steps out of the way. If that's what you want, fine. That's what it's saying here, isn't it? All that can be known about God is there and they keep changing and they keep defiling it and they keep doing this and they want this and they're searching after sinful things and finally God says, fine, take it. Have it. It's yours. And so what, you know what He does? He lets us deceive ourselves. He lets us harden our own hearts. He lets us walk away. He lets us go. Psalm 81 says this, My people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them up to their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. <laughs> that's what he does. Wow, man, that's harsh. That's mean. How could God do that? Was it harsh when God passed judgment on Satan? Was it harsh when he gave him over to the consequences? 
to defile the holy God whom he was created to worship? When Satan said in his own heart, I will be like the Most High, was it harsh when God said, you will not? And I will let you go and give you over to the consequences. No, we would say it's just and it's righteous. How are we any different? Do you think you command more respect than Satan? Than Lucifer, who was the greatest of all created beings? And we have done the same. We have defiled the High and Holy One. That's what we deserve is for God to let us go. But God is so gracious, isn't He? He forgives us so many times. He has grace and mercy. He draws me back. He convicts me of my sin when He does not have to. And there are times He lets some go when He has full right to do just that. You understand the only way we know we sin is because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The only time we know we're not right with God is because of the Holy Spirit. The only one who illumines our eyes to the light of the truth is the Holy Spirit. And it could be with some, God just says, nope, no more. I'm going to give them over. Pharaoh, you want to harden your heart? Fine, your heart is hard. You see how that works? Oh, you may say, how can God do that? Well, Paul will address that. Who are you to reply against God? And we'll address that next week. So let's wrap this up. I hope it's been somewhat clear. Is this this passage saying that God has mercy, meaning He saves whomever He wants to save? And that He hardens, meaning He sends them to hell, whoever he wants to? Is that what Romans 9 and 18 is saying? He saves whoever he wants and he sends to hell whoever he wants. No. That's not what Paul's saying. Think. Think. He's giving another comparison between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses was right with God. Moses saw the mercy of God. Pharaoh rejected time after time, and so he was separated from God. He was hardened. I think it's as simple as that. And he's using it to show how Israel fell, just like Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. Now we have Moses and Pharaoh. God's elect nation fell because they were not children of faith. They didn't count the promise as precious, and they did not Uh, faithfully seek the face and will of God like Moses did. They did not have faith. All of Romans up to this point now has been about one thing. Faith. Justification by faith, right? Not by works. Walking a new life in faith, right? Walking in the Spirit by faith. Why, when it comes to Romans 9, does Paul throw all that out and say, faith doesn't matter, God does it all, you don't do anything? We don't start changing, oh, well, Paul said this, I can't understand that, so that must mean all of the rest of the Bible means he chooses whom he's going to save, and he sends people to hell, and that's his mercy. No! 
His mercy is revealed to those who have faith. We stay part of Him. We stay uh, faithful to Him by walking in faith. It's just that simple. Israel fell because they didn't have faith. That's how important this subject is. You're saved by faith. You follow through baptism by faith. You're part of His church by faith. You walk in the Spirit of faith. And you stay in Christ by faith. Period. You don't, you face the consequences. You can be just like Israel. Have all of this precious promises and throw it all away because you get too focused on yourself and you do not follow in faith. I think that's exactly what he's saying here. And God let them go. He hardened their hearts and they are still under judgment because they rejected Him time and time. Remember what we read in Romans 10? All day long I've, I've held out my hands to you and you, you don't accept. The whole of the Old Testament shows time after time where God reaches out and reaches out and reaches out and reaches out and then He sends His Son. And you know what they say? Nope. We have no king but Caesar. Put this man to death. You know what God says then? Fine. And lets them go. And God can do that, and He is righteous in that because He is God. Therefore, He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy, and whom He will, He hardeneth. So, what does that mean for you and me? Like right here and right now, as we come to a close? That is the most basic principle in your walk with God. Period. It doesn't matter. If you're new to this or you've been serving, do you follow in faith or do you reject? That's how we serve God is by faith. We walk by faith, right? It's all by faith. And us lifers, we better be careful about thinking ourselves like that. Us lifers can get an attitude almost exactly as the same of Israel. I've been here 30-something years. I'm good. I'm better than people. (coughs) I'm proud of my actions. Like we're invincible. (laughs) Take note, it's by faith. And we of all people ought to be the most aware of the danger of sin. The Bible is clear about who God shows mercy to in the Psalms. In 1 Samuel it says He shows mercy to the merciful, to the brokenhearted, to the repentant, to the upright, to the oppressed, to those who trust Him. The New Testament is crystal clear. Grace and mercy and peace be to you in who? Christ Jesus. It says that in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus and Philippians. Or Philemon, excuse me. <laughs> It's all over the New Testament. And perhaps it's put best in this verse. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You want to know who gives us the mercy of, Christ, of, of God? It's Christ. It's Jesus. It's always been about Him and following Him in faith. It's not by what you do or what I do. It's how faithful we are to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's by faith in Him. It's by being in Christ, by following in faith. Pastor Braden puts it this way. 
there is only one elect, and that is Jesus Christ. He is both the promised seed of the miraculous birth like Isaac, and the second Adam, the older, the flesh, shall serve the younger or the spirit. The only way we can be elect is if we are of miraculous birth, and the flesh is subject to the spirit in Christ. It's Him. It's faith in Him. It's following Him. We must follow and be faithful to Jesus to experience the fullness of God's mercy. God says, I'm going to have mercy on whom I will, and here's how you get it. You follow in faith. Christ who came to give His life as the ransom for our sin, that whosoever believeth should not perish but have eternal life, and that we would place our life in Him through baptism and serve Him in the local body and live faithful to Him each and every day. I've stated many times, God has His plan, God has His calling and His purpose to save men and women, to prepare them for His coming kingdom, to be glorified in this world through His kingdom people, and someday to glorify them. That's Israel and the church. That is who He will have mercy on, those who follow in faith. And you this morning, you can follow or not. That's the other side. That's what it means for us. First, we ought to follow in faith. Secondly, you can reject. No one's forcing you to be here. You can doodle, draw, play games on your phone while preaching's going on. Leave here. Not remember a dang word I said. And talk and live and act like you were never here. Throw the F-bombs. Gossip, curse, pick other people apart. Show none of Christ. Think none of Christ. Be concerned with everything more than Christ. Those people that you know that you're lost, keep your mouth shut. Don't witness. And think you're good. Good because you talk the talk. Good because your name is on the church roll, or you and God are homies. We got an understanding. Live without a second thought to faith. Go be a fake Christian. No one's forcing you to be. And be warned God might let you go. You understand? Because you hardened your heart, you deceived yourself. He owes us nothing. We can't demand that He wait till I'm good and ready. I'll be faithful when. He owes us nothing. We owe Him everything, don't we? See, we, we have a tendency to try to apply this principle to others. Don't reject God. Don't reject God like those who are lost. Listen, if you're lost and you, the, the Scripture has spoken to your heart and you, need, you know you need a Savior, don't reject Him. Bow in faith. Don't put that off. If He's drawing your heart, just bow in faith, surrender it to Him. And there is peace in life that waits for you, forgiveness of sins, if you just surrender to Him. Don't reject. Sure, that, that's a meaning. Or we tend to apply it to those maybe who've really messed up their lives by sin and, and they, they don't want to come back because maybe they have fears or they're just rejecting. Listen, the message is the same. Don't reject. 
Repent of your sin. Turn back to God. But this is more of a warning to us who are in church. Be careful. Be careful because Paul's talking about God's people who fell away because they didn't follow in faith. Don't think we can't fall the same as Israel fell. They did because they served God without faith. And in doing so, they served themselves. We must walk by faith in Him. It starts with faith, it ends with faith, and we walk by faith each and every day. That's it, man. That is the most important principle you need to know in your spiritual life. To walk by faith in God. To have faith in Him. Not to reject. To follow His leading, to follow His words and His commands. Not our version, not our works, not our thing. We follow God. So I simply ask this morning, have you? Or have we begun maybe to drift away from that? We find ourselves kind of just existing, thinking we're good. Maybe we need to be more like Moses. I read that passage and it's convicting to me. Moses is on his face. Saying, Lord, I want to see you more. you got to go with me. I can't do this by myself. We can't do this by myself. I want to know that you go with us. If I found grace in your sight, Lord, please show me more. That's a prayer I want to have. Because that's a prayer of faith, isn't it? Be careful. Lest we reject. And God leaves us to it. This is not something we play around with. We are to serve Him and to walk by faith. Perhaps maybe it's time to come back to that. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank You for this word. I thank You for this time that we had together. I ask Your blessing on the reading of Scripture, on the words that were spoken, Lord. I pray that they were clear. Help us to see and to understand the principles You have here, Lord. Help us to be faithful. Strengthen us when we are weak in it. Lord, and if our hearts are being hardened by our own sin, Lord, break it up. Soften it by your word and by your spirit. Don't let us go. I ask for grace in my own life that I might walk with you. I ask the same for each one here, Lord. Use this message as you see fit and do the work that only you can do. In the name of Jesus, amen.